What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Moderate Podcast for Sunday, January 24th, 2021. Jamie Davis here. And please remember to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast catcher, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you want to listen to, however you get our show. Um, And please share it too. Please share it with your friends and family. I know that people have shared the show with other people that have maybe had more extreme views on both sides just to maybe try to give them a different perspective. So that'd be great if you could maybe share the show in that vein. Um, That'd be awesome. So any any way we can grow, um, continue to grow this movement and maybe advance this moderate platform of just taking an issue looking at it pragmatically and, you know, not looking at it through the lens of your bigger beliefs. I mean, obviously it's going to, it's going to paint the picture of where you're going to go. But I think sometimes we get tied up in having to be one way or another that even if we don't necessarily agree with it in our own heads, because we are, we identify ourselves as a progressive or as a conservative or as a liberal, you know, whatever, we tend to want to keep all the viewpoints of those of those various factions, even if it's something that maybe we don't personally agree with, because you want to make sure that you, because you feel like you have to have that belief, I guess is maybe the point. And I don't, I don't think that people should feel that way. I don't think that should be the way that we operate. So um, obviously we are, this is our first episode in the Biden era. Um, and we're going to talk about that because apparently things didn't quite go as, as planned for some of the QAnons because, you know, everything we, we heard even as of Tuesday of this week that everything was going according to plan and that uh, we have a pretty fascinating article of what people are, some of people's reactions that actually believe that. So we're going to get into that in a little bit later. But first, I did want to share a little bit of a personal story maybe is a more of a PSA for some of you out there that are thinking of making some major purchases, appliances, furniture, things like that. So obviously I've talked about it on the show several times already. Um, we did move recently and when you move, sometimes you have to get new stuff. You have to get different stuff. And part of the deal when we sold our old house was we had to leave our refrigerator and our washer and dryer. So we had to buy new um, appliances for the new house. And we actually had at one time, if you believe this, three refrigerators at our old house. So we had the main one inside the house and we had two in the garage. And we're a family of five and we have various needs and various wants. And so uh, that's why we have to have that much storage. And and all three were always full. And so, and, and they would constantly be emptied. So you can imagine the eating that goes on, that goes on in this house um, so anyway, um, we, we looked at Costco cause obviously again, being a family of five, Costco is a big, uh, place to, to go that was something that we rely on big ticket, you know, not just for the big ticket items, but just for buying in bulk and, um, and, and whatnot. But anyway, we, we looked on, uh, Costco, we got a good delivery date for everything. So we ordered our washer and dryer. We ordered our refrigerator. And as a bonus, um, because we have a large loft that's basically the kids' playroom, we uh, put the, we use the, 
we also bought a couch from Costco that was um, a Black Friday deal. It was like 300 bucks off. It was a really, really good deal. So we, we bought that as well. And so we get an email saying, okay, well, your, your stuff's going to be delivered on these dates. I think it was, you know, December 12th or something like right after we moved in. Perfect, right? Well, that didn't happen. And you know when you buy something and they, they put a pending charge, they basically put a hold on your card. Well, the, it, it was, you know, coming to the point where it was supposed to be delivered. We weren't hearing anything. Um, my wife called. They they've tried to look in on it, and they said, well, it'll be, no, actually, it's going to be pushed back to this other date. Fine. But what we noticed is that those charges fell off of our, of our uh, bank account. So... We'd had the washer and dryer on order forever, and we really needed that because we didn't have anything at that point. So that was a more critical thing. We still had the spare refrigerators, which we could use um, until the new refrigerator came. So no big deal on that. The washer and dryer were critical. So we didn't get those. They weren't coming. We had no idea when they were going to come. So my wife ordered basically the same washer and dryer from, from Home Depot. Two days later, things were delivered. Because Costco tried to say, well, you know, there's a delay with the manufacturers and they're not delivering to anybody right now, except for Home Depot, which got it in two days. I don't know how the hell that happened. So we canceled the washer and dryer. We get an email saying that the refrigerator is going to come, I think on the 16th or something like that. 16th comes, 16th goes, nothing. So we finally buy it again on we, we finally buy the refrigerator on homedepot.com and um, we scheduled delivery on um, on Saturday January 2nd and lo and behold the washer and dryer or the uh, refrigerator shows up so we cancel that from the from the from from Costco so then the couch the couch was actually originally supposed to be delivered I think like the last weekend in November, which would have actually been too early because we didn't get the keys to the house because of delays and stuff until December 9th. So we, we we were okay with that. And that was probably the least of the critical purchases because we, we didn't, you know, we, the, the couch was nice to have. It wasn't a need to have. And then we, we thought we'd just try to see, play this out and see how long it would go. So then we get an email saying, okay, it'll be here December 28th. That's a Monday. So, December 28th comes, we get a confirmation that it'll be delivered. We have a con- we get another follow-up. My wife gets another follow-up saying that it's going to be del- it, the delivery trucks out for delivery. And here's the time frame that they're, they're going to come. So we're sitting here, we're waiting. I was off work at the time. We're waiting, we're waiting. And she gets an alert saying it's been delivered. We're like, what? This, this thing hasn't been delivered. Not only did it was did they see it delivered, they had a picture of it being delivered and a signature of it being delivered, because she was actually able to track the, the 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 truck. The truck was in our neighborhood; it never stopped in our neighborhood, or at least it never stopped at our house. And then we got the we got the confirmation that it was delivered, and the truck moved on. So it was so my wife opens the picture, saying, "Okay, where did our couch get delivered?" Turns out it was a picture of a dishwasher in another house. Obviously it wasn't ours because we never even saw these people and a signature of somebody completely different than us had a completely different name. I can't remember what the name was, but it was not anywhere close to our name. So we could still see where the truck, or at least we thought we could still see where the truck was on the map. 
So we take, so, so I, I jump in the car because it wasn't too far away and I go drive to where the truck, where the map said the truck was. The truck was nowhere to be found. That wasn't there. I don't know if it ever was there. I have no idea. But anyway, so it never, you know, so my wife's on the phone with Costco going, what the hell's going on? You know, we have this picture of somebody, of somebody else's kitchen with a different item that's attached to our order. And now it's saying that we, it's been delivered. So it's going to be closed probably. Right. And the lady at Costco is like, well, and on my end, it still has, it shows it still hasn't been delivered. Well, then why am I getting an email saying that it has been delivered? She's like, I don't know. I don't understand what you mean. And she, you know, shows, you know, she says, she describes the email and says what's in it. And she goes, well, that's really weird. I've never seen that before. <laughs> it's always great when the customer service person says, we've never seen that before. So um, anyway, they said, okay, well, I, I, um, let me call the delivery company and I will talk to the supervisor and see if we can get this straightened out. So my wife's on hold for like 45 minutes while she calls the delivery company. The lady finally comes back on and says, okay, I talked to the supervisor. They're going to look into it. They say they have your product there at the warehouse. You'll get a call within two days to make sure that we can get this out to you. Two days comes and goes, no call at all. My wife knew that wasn't going to be the case either because she's already been down this road a couple of times. And so finally, she gets an email last week saying, we are scheduling your delivery for Tuesday, Tuesday, January 19th. Okay, well, so she puts it on her family calendar, you know, couch delivery, maybe. And so she kept getting emails and then she started getting alerts and texts and, and messages that she had not seen before. And so maybe this was, was actually giving us some promise and she actually got a delivery window that day. And ding, lo and behold, the couch did finally show up only two months after we ordered it, apparently a month and a half after it got to their warehouse or something. I don't know. Cause this stuff was the sales stuff was in stock. It wasn't like they had to make it. This was in stock. At least when I bought my lazy boy recliner, which I haven't gotten yet, they told me this has to be custom made. It's going to be four to six months before you get this thing. So at least I have some, you know, realistic expectations. So I know I won't be getting this thing until, April or maybe even May, which is fine. I mean, I'm fine with that. I just, at least I know that's going to be the case. And I know because they control the whole process. So that'll be, that'll be nice. I, I can't, I'm still excited to get the text message saying that my, my chair is ready, but uh, it won't be here in time for obviously the football games today, probably not for the Super Bowl as well, but uh, maybe I'll be able to watch some hockey games um, in that chair before the season's over. Anyway. All right. I know I spent a lot of time on a, on a personal story, but I guess the moral of the story is don't buy big ticket items in Costco, at least not in Southern California. Maybe they have it. They're, they're crapped together in other areas of the country. Not here. I get, apparently they had bought a delivery company and the delivery company uh, personnel wasn't happy about it. And they're just acting. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true or not. That's, that's all hearsay. But anyway, so obviously we had, let's get in, let's get into the actual real content. This, the stuff that you guys are actually here for. So we had inauguration day on on January twentieth, and 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 overall, I thought Biden's uh, speech was very good. Whether he's going to be able to deliver on that message of unity and trying to heal is yet to be seen. And he he did hit the right notes of you know I'm not the, just the president for people that voted for me. I'm going to fight just as hard for the people that didn't vote for me. It's a pretty standard thing to say, um, but it especially is poignant though after the four years that we've had of Trump. And so, um, you know, that is a big, a big, important message. And 
Um, and we'll get into some of the things, actual actions he took once he was sworn into office. But before that, I want to get into a couple of things. First of all, before the inauguration happened, obviously there's usually a long, a, a, a last minute push for pardons. And there was 143 par- pardons and commutations. There's a couple that stood out for me, three that stood out for me in particular. There wasn't anything earth shattering. You know, Rudy Giuliani didn't get a pardon. He didn't pardon any of his family or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't any big surprises on there. One thing that was kind of a slap in the face, though, for his supporters, if they if they actually had a brain. But, you know, I, I mean, th- th- this is what we know about them. I love the poorly educated. And this is this is a pure, this is a great example of that. He pardons Steve Bannon. Now, Steve Bannon was accused, essentially, of defrauding members that the most ardent members of his base because people were donating and most of the, the people that bon- donated to we build the wall it was a campaign that raised 25 million dollars most of those donors are from the the trump you know support wing you know the, from cult 45 i mean those most ardent supporters of trump donated to this thing and so Bannon was accused of using hundreds of thousands of dollars for personal expenses. And there's there's evidence, there's no evidence that any of this money actually went to building the wall at all. So he basically pulled a fast one on his own base and Trump gave him a full pardon, which makes his trial moot because he was on trial for it. And so now the trial just gets thrown out because uh, he was, because um, it's a federal crime because it was a, it was a, Nonprofit, which is regulated by the IRS. Now, you could make an argument that they could still go after him in state court for the state that he was incorporated in, you know, because there's usually identical statutes for defrauding uh, a nonprofit. So maybe they'll, they'll they'll go that route for Steve Bannon. But on the federal level, you know, he's been you know he's he gets to walk free and clear um, with all that money. He doesn't have to pay anything back. He doesn't have to do any restitution. And though that again, that was money directly from his most fervent supporters. So that is a slap in their face. And they don't even know it. They don't even understand that. They don't even realize it. I don't think they understand that that's what actually happened. Um, Another interesting one, especially with all the election drama and all the accusations of fraud, especially in these urban cities, you know, he talked, you know, a lot of of was pointed at Philadelphia, Detroit, and how they've always been these corrupt cities, right? And that was part of what cost him the election. Well, one of the people he pardoned was former Democratic mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick. Now, back in 2008, he was uh, sentenced to, uh, to to prison for a pay-to-play scheme, basically, uh, you know, bribery um, in exchange for uh, city contracts. So, hey, you, you kick some back to me, I'll make sure you get the work type of thing. It's it's a pretty straightforward type of bribe um, that, you, that you don't see a lot. I mean, people think that happens all the time, but you really don't see it a lot. Um, well, he had actually been in jail since 2011 and he's really turned his life around. He's, um, you know, a, I think he, he does teach a Sunday school or something, some equivalent like that, but he's really cleaned up his life and and turned things around. And so, I mean, I don't disagree with him, with Trump, um, pardoning Kwame Kilpatrick because, you know, he actually has shown repentance for his actions and his, and actually has done some good. So I'm fine with that. But what I, I guess my point is, is that after all of the, shouting about these different, these corrupt cities. And here's actually real evidence, actual evidence of corruption in one of those cities that he's accusing him of, and he's pardoning them. 
that's just I thought was weird. The third one that was kind of weird to me was the uh, uh, the the pardoning of Albert Pirro Jr. Now he's the ex husband of Janine Pirro um, of Fox News fame. And this was his very last pardon. He did this one basically um, just as he walked out the door. You know, I actually, I think he was already gone. I think he might have already been to Florida by the time this actually happened because this was this actually happened less than an hour before Biden was sworn in. So about eleven o'clock Eastern on January twentieth. So that was an interesting one as well. I'm, I don't really know what his, what he was accused of, but I think it was some kind of financial crime. But I just thought that was interesting, especially. You know, it's, it's the ex-husband of Janine Pirro, but maybe that helps her because, you know, maybe he was going to have trouble paying alimony. I don't know. So that's why it helps her. I, I I don't know exactly the whole story behind that. But anyway, so then the inauguration happens. Biden gets sworn in. And much to the chagrin of QAnon believers, um, nothing happened other than that. They thought this was going to be some kind of thing. So here's an article from NBC that talks about the disappointment of QAnon. QAnon supporters believe Wednesday's inauguration was an elaborate trap set by the former president wherein Democrats would be rounded up and executed while Trump retained power. Various doomsdays theorized that that theorized by the QAnon community also have come and gone without incident. While Biden took the oath, one top post on a QAnon forum read, I don't think this is supposed to happen and wondered how long does it take for the take the Fed to run up the stairs and arrest him? Another post said, anyone feeling let beyond let down? It's like being a kid and seeing the big gift under the tree, thinking it is exactly what you want, only to open it and realize it's a, it, and realize it is a lump of coal. Now, some QAnon followers spent weeks preparing for a nationwide blackout starting at noon on Inauguration Day, warning friends and family in text change and Facebook messages to buy CB radios and stock up on food. They believed Trump would announce martial law, through the emergency broadcasting system before carrying out mass arrests. So um, Travis View, who hosts the conspiracy debunking podcast QAnon Anonymous, um, has said QAnon influencers have built large audiences over the past three years that have built large audiences over the past three years continue to encourage their followers audiences to trust the plan. Many rank and file QAnon followers are expressing anger and disillusionment. So another post poster said, God help us, we're beyond ready. If nothing happens, I will no longer believe in anything. Another one said, we all just got played. Yes, yes, you did. You did. You've been played for the last four years. Um, now, Logically.ai researcher Nick uh, Bakovic said that while this it does appear many QAnon followers are giving up after this last failed prophecy, he has, seen, he has seen white supremacist recruiters raid QAnon groups with the explicit goal of recruiting disillusion and hopeless conspiracy theorists. There are lots of people feeling shocked, cheated, and angry. As scary as it is, it, it, as that is, on its own, it's the, it's the rest I'm more worried about, Bakovic said. We're, re, we're seeing a lot of neo-Nazi praying on a, a lot of neo-Nazis preying on the potentially disenchanted Q people. In the days after the Capitol riots, white supremacist groups expressly targeted parlor for refugees or Trump fans who they believed could be radicalized after the conservative social media platform parlor was at least temporarily shut down and QAnon was banned from Twitter and Facebook. Focus less on trying to red pill them on World War II 
and more on how to make them angry about the election and the new democratic regime, read one white supremacist recruitment message on Telegram, heighten their burning hatred of injustice. So basically, again, this is stoking the fire. There are a lot of people that are disenchanted there. And a lot of the conservative media is already saying how Biden's ruining this, ruining this country. I don't know how he could do that in four days. Um, I, I don't. I, I haven't noticed a difference in my life in the last four days, to be honest with you. Um, but I mean, I still see the same rhetoric. I saw it's the same rhetoric we saw when Obama was president from the conservative media, and so I think that's what we're going to see. And that was really one of the things that fueled this whole movement, this whole Trump movement, which we're going to talk about when we talk about where the Republican Party goes from here, because now they're out of power um, at the federal level. We're going to see, we're going to talk about where that goes. Now they don't have, you know, the Democrats don't have a big margin for error right now. And we're going to talk about why that is too. You know, some of the things that were said that to be impossible um, because of what happened um, on Tuesday, November 3rd, it's statistically impossible because of the gains that the Republicans made in the House, but yet they lost the White House, and they can't understand why that is. And we're going to talk about why that is a little bit later. So when Joe Biden was inaugurated, he put in office, a couple of things happened. Oh, oh the other thing that happened at, related to the inauguration, I'm sure people have seen it by now, are the Bernie memes. Those have been great. Um, a lot of people have done a lot of creative things with that. And it, it is kind of one of those things where, it, it goes past the politics and it's something we all can laugh at. And it'll be, you know, it'll be particularly interesting if Bernie Sanders can really glom onto this and, and make and, and take it and use it for his brand. Um, because I think it's something that he could capitalize on and gain some popularity from. Not that people should listen to that because, you know, you should probably still pay attention to actual policy arguments and discussions. And some of the things he, he says and suggests are very, very scary. Um, you know, he thinks that the reason that the Democrats lost the House in 1994 and again in 2010 had to do with the fact that they didn't take bold enough action. And I would say that's exactly, you know, I, I don't think it's a very calculated decision to do that. I think what that will do is you got to, if you, if you take these two years and try to push very progressive, very liberal policies, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. So that's we're also going to talk about where the Democratic Party goes from here because it's going to be very important to talk about that as well. It's not just where the Republicans go, but also where the Democrats go because they are still they are suffering from somewhat of an identity crisis. So Joe Biden took 17 um, executive orders. Um, he took executive actions on day one. So here's a look at some of them. Three of them were related to coronavirus. One of them was a reversal. Um, to stop the with U.S.'s withdrawal from the WHO, with Dr. Anthony Fauci becoming the head of the dele- delegation to the WHO. Um, he launched a 100 day- days masking challenge, asking Americans to wear masks for 100 days, requires masks and physical distancing in federal buildings, on federal lands, and by government contractors and urges states and local governments to do the same. Well, <clears throat> a lot of, least at least at government buildings, you know, you have to go inside. That's already happening out there right now. I mean, that that is certainly happening where I work. It is certainly happening in every other government uh, building that I've seen. But, um, but the 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 funny thing about that was is he already got called out for not doing that himself. You know, even though he was there was nobody around him, there was no family around. 
But, you know, as soon as he leaves that stage, he's around people. And, you know, the, the mask was not on. Sorry, I did drink some water here. But I think that, uh, you know, the question on that as to whether, you know, it's a double standard, it, it kind of is. I mean, again, it's all about perception. It's about how you, if you want, it doesn't, you know, and, and even when questioned about it, the White House press secretary said, well, you know, we need to focus on more important things. I mean, there was a back and forth, you know, that, that statement needs to go into context a little bit. And she explained, well, you know, it was just his family, you know, they're always around each other, blah, blah, blah. But then at the end of the day, she got, she said, well, we need to focus more on more important things. But I thought this, if it's so, if it wasn't that important, he wouldn't make it, it wouldn't make a executive action on this on his first day if it wasn't important you know what i'm saying so it's i don't think that's a good message um and again i think that it does put out there a double, double standard you have to be very careful about public perception on especially on this kind of thing because now if anybody's already skeptical they're not going to take you seriously right i mean they're not going to take them seriously anyway but it really just gives them ammunition to really not take it seriously so that's what you have to be careful of he took a couple of actions on the economy um putting a moratorium on evictions until at least march 31st um, extending the existing pause on student loan payments and interest for americans with federal student loans to at least september 30th a big thing that's been talked about a lot in the environment two um, key actions um, rejoin the paris climate accord and cancel the Keystone XL pipeline and direct agencies to review and reverse more than 100 Trump's actions on the environment. Um, that is a definite um, uh, big impact uh, economically as well as on the environment. Um, and so that's something that we can talk about in the weeks ahead um, individually. That probably could take a whole show just on, that, on those kind of things. And I'm going to bring my dad on on those because I know that he's got some views on that that maybe we don't see eye to eye on, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big, I, I do understand climate change. I do understand the human aspect of it. I think the solutions that have been, have been drafted for it. It's kind of like what we've done with coronavirus. It's overkill, I think a little in, in, in a way. So I think that's where we have to be really careful on how we deal with that. Um, racial equity rescinds the Trump administration's 1776 commission, directs agencies to review the, their actions to ensure racial equity, um, prevents workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, on the census, requires non-citizens to be included, so that just reverses um, the Trump push, which actually won approval in court. So that's another thing that um, is has been uh, bantied about. Um, several things on immigration uh, fortifies DACA after Trump's effort to un efforts to undo protections for undocumented people brought into this country as children. Um, reverse, he reversed the Trump administration's restrictions on U.S. entry for passport holders for, from seven Muslim-majority countries. So remember the Muslim ban that he enacted almost immediately upon taking office. Undoes Trump's uh, expansion of immigration enforcement within the U.S. Um, halts construction of the border wall. Will by terminating the national emergency declaration used to fund it extend and then finally extends uh, deferrals of deportation and work authorizations for Liberians with a safe haven in the United States until June 30th, 2022 
on ethics requires executive branch appointees to sign an ethics pledge barring them from acting in personal interest and requiring them to uphold the independence of the Justice Department. That sounds good on its face. Um, obviously, I think people could see there's probably loopholes in that, but you know, on, on its face, that's that's a good message. And finally, on regulation, directs the OMB director to develop recommendations to modernize regulatory review and undoes Trump's regulatory approval process. So remember, Trump's push to, you know, for every um, regulation that's added, they want to take away two. Um, I think that basically re re reverses that direction. So it'll be interesting to see how that thing, how that goes around. But also, but everyone on the right, on the conservative meeting is already saying how much this is going to ruin the um, Americans and it's putting Americans last and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's a little more complicated than that. And so, again, those are things we have plenty to talk about in the, ne in the next few weeks on this program in regards to that. Um, so when we come back, I do want to talk about a, the, uh, the de a little bit about coronavirus because that was some of the things that was were talked about with uh, the executive orders, um, some bold action that has been taken. And there was an article that really talked that really shows where the media's head might be, at least some of the media's head might be, and why this is going to be a dangerous precedent that they're setting going forward. And then, of course, we'll also talk about where the political parties go from here, because I think that's an important conversation to have. So that'll be all coming up after the break. This week's episode of the Moderate Podcast is brought to you by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real recognizable ingredients, a disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new healthy snacking category. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo, to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better informed choices about health. Not to mention that these bars are delicious. I mean, I eat them at work all the time. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and man, do we need that right now. That's why we're teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% off or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Go to podgo.co slash kind. That's podgo, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash kind, K-I-N-D. Kind Bar, creating a kinder and healthier world, one act and one snack at a time. Welcome back to the Moderate Podcast, powered by Inger.fm. We're on episode number 109 this week, and we're glad to have you with us on this first episode of the Biden era. It'll give us plenty to talk about policy-wise. We'll actually get to talk about policy. So whether it's on illegal immigration, because that was one of the things that has been big, whether it's on the environment, we have a lot of things that we can dive into and see the pros and cons of these various policies and actually have pragmatic policy discussions, which is going to be a refreshing change because we haven't really been able to have that because the, the overall, the White House has just been so erratic and so irrational, especially in the face of the coronavirus it's been really, really hard to talk about anything else. And it's it really, it, it, you can't focus on anything actual from a policy perspective because of that. So now we'll have the opportunity to do that, which will be great. So 
on the coronavirus, uh, there was a lot of talk about this whole notion of, is it really bad as we thought it was? And so now that we're into 2021, we're 24 days into the year, we can talk about, we can start talking about death counts. And now this isn't just death counts from coronavirus. This is overall death counts. And so there, it does make that a little more complicated because obviously it's it's pretty clear. I don't know how anybody could argue that there were a significant number of deaths that were a direct result of the coronavirus. Now, again, people don't usually die of the coronavirus. People, just like people don't usually die of the flu. They die of something that they catch as a result of having the flu or having coronavirus. So they die, they die from pneumonia. I think pneumonia is a very acute uh, problem when it comes to coronavirus because it does affect your, it does weaken your lungs so much. And when your lungs are weakened, it does allow for bacterial infections to, to take hold. And, um, and usually that's why you have like the breathing machines and things like that, that people have to be on as a result of coronavirus because other complicated fluids build up in your lungs, things like that. And so obviously if, if you were absent that virus, if that virus didn't exist, if it wasn't there, then they wouldn't have those problems. Now, maybe they would have died later of something else, but it's taking people sooner than it otherwise would have. And I think the numbers are bearing that out so far. But does that mean that the 441,000 excess deaths we or increase in deaths we've had this year and counting are 100% attributed to coronavirus some would argue that's the case. I would argue that's not. And there's one particular category that I always look at, and that's the ages 25 to 44 category. And there was a spike there. So there was obviously the biggest spike we saw was in 65, I think maybe even 75 and old, older in terms of death rates, because those are the ones that were most affected by the coronavirus. But we also saw a, a disconcerting spike in the 25 to 44 category. And those probably are not related to coronavirus. So we're going to talk about that in a second after we talk about the numbers overall. So, so far, they've counted for 2020, 3,293,775 deaths. That is 441,028 more than we had in 2019. That's a 15.5% increase. That is the biggest increase we've seen in many, many years. Actually, it's the biggest increase we've seen as part of, as far as a rate since the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. I mean, that is where we're at right now. And so now we haven't finished counting yet because CDC, per the CDC, this is all from CDC data, the data lags by many weeks. And so the death count for 2019 was not finalized until April 9th. So we probably won't know until maybe sometime in April what that total number is. I mean, it could bump over 500,000, probably not. It's probably pretty close to where it should be because I think most deaths are probably counted, but probably not all. But right now, when you look at it as a rate per 100,000, it was up 14.8%. It went from 866.9 in 2019, which was actually down slightly from the year before that, which was 867.9. Um, and it went up to 995 in 2020. And that's, again, and counting. So you just take the number of deaths, divide it by the population, multiply it by 100,000, and you get that ratio. 
So again, that is that 14.8%. We look at deaths per 100,000. 100, that is the highest we have seen since the 60s. It has been going, and, and, and the interesting thing is we, we hit a low around 2010 is was the lowest we saw. It was actually below eight um, per, per, uh, per thousand or 800 per 100,000. So, and it has actually steadily climbed um, since then. 2018, we did see, like I said, we did see a slight drop in that number it was if going in 2018 it went up 2.6 percent in 2019 and actually went down 0.1 percent in terms of rate um so you know we, we, it's been interesting that we've seen you know that that increase that we saw year over year from 2010 to 2018 is a little bit concerning in that um you know it was the longest steady increase we've seen um you know since you know probably um, actually, I think it's at least since 1900 because that, that number has been going down um, always since then. But we spiked at about 9.8 in 1969 or so. Um, and so now we're looking at data from, you know, I'm looking at this graph. We're going to spike up to over that level in 2020. Um, and then you look farther back, and you look at when the Spanish flu hit, it went from 1,397. So again, more people are dying in general. You know, the, the data I'm looking at starts in 1900. And in 1900, the death rate was 1,719 per 100,000. So almost double, actually more than double, actually about double what it was in 2019. And then kind of steadily got, went down. And then it spiked in 1918 to 1,810. So that was a almost 30% increase. So it went from 1,397 to 1,810, an increase of 413 per 100,000 or a 29.6% increase. So we still didn't see those levels here. We only saw it 14.8%. But the concerning thing on that is that, remember, they didn't have any vaccines back then. Modern medicine, you know, penicillin hadn't even been discovered yet at that point. So there was, a, they were much more vulnerable to that kind of thing back then. And yet we have all the advantages of a hundred years worth of, of advancement in the medical field. And we still had an increase in the death rate of almost 15% against this is the crude death rate. So what does that mean? I mean, there's a couple of things that you could say. Obviously, coronavirus probably leads that category, the vast majority of it. But you got to also recognize that maybe the lockdowns did create some of this. But the unknown question, the thing that people are always going to speculate on, and I don't know how you would actually get a really, really accurate answer in how that becomes, how that, how that translates into life saved by the lockdowns. Like if we had not done anything, if we had done the Sweden model, essentially, what would have happened? What, what would have happened to that death rate? Some people argue it probably wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Some people argue that it would that it's made a lot of difference. I don't know how you actually are able to quantify that with a virus that is new, because you can't you can't compare it to to other outbreaks of this particular virus because it's never happened before. I mean, if you could look back and say, okay. 
the, this time we had the, the, when we had that virus this time around 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, we didn't take these measures. This is what happened. Now we took these measures and now this is what happened. You don't have a way to, you can do computer models, but the problem is again, with computer models, it can be flawed because you can, you know, human bias can go into calculating those formulas that would then calculate what would have happened had we not done these things. Now, again, there's measures we've taken and you can say, well, when we've taken these measures in these other circumstances, it helped X. But the, but again, we haven't taken drastic measures like we have with this kind of virus. We haven't seen these types of like lockdowns since, since the Spanish flu, since 100 years ago. So that's why it's, it's really, really hard to make those comparisons because you didn't have the modern medicine like you did back then. So it's just, it, there's so many variables and so many things that would just have to be assumed that you can never come with an, with an accurate answer and can probably create any narrative that you want. And that's where it gets dangerous and that's where it gets a little bit scary. But again, looking back at the 25 to 44 category, that's where I get most concerned. Now in March through July, there were 76,088 deaths in that age category. That's 11,899 more deaths than expected in that category. So the percentage is pretty close to the overall percentage that we've seen in the increase, right? So what does that, again, what does that mean? So in that number, 4,535 COVID deaths were reported in that number, which means it accounted for less than half. So the argument that they're making in this is that, well, that means that COVID deaths were underreported. That's what they're saying. That's the assumption that they make. I think that is a ridiculous assumption or that is a ridiculous um, conclusion to come to because there's no way that we were missing COVID deaths in that time period, especially on the latter end of that time period. By then, we knew the coronavirus was there. We were checking for it. We were counting them because we wanted to make sure we counted them. I cannot see a possibility now. Now that we're kind of on the tail end of this, this stuff, maybe, I can't see a possibility that COVID deaths were undercounted, even at that time frame, especially now. I mean, now I now there's no chance of it at all. And I, and I don't buy into the conspiracy theories, by the way, either, of people saying that, well, it's because the hospitals had to spike the count. So if anything, it's overcount. I don't buy into that either, okay? Because that is out-and-out out fraud, and people are not going to lose their livelihoods so that their, their hospitals can get a few more bucks because the doctors don't see any, any of that money. The hospital does. So, and, and they're not going to risk their license. They're not going to risk their livelihood to lie about that. I, I just, they're not going to do it. I, I don't know what to tell you, but it's not going to happen. But in 2018, in that category, there were 10,347 in, in that 25 to 44 category, March through April, 2018, there were 10,347 opioid deaths. So what I would be interested to see is what that number is in 2020 because the lockdowns and the depression and the different ailments that were not being treated because doctor's offices, hospitals were shut down to patients, people were less likely to go to the doctor because of the coronavirus. They either didn't want to catch it or because their doctor, doctor's offices were closed that that would 
probably lead to an increase of drug use, which could lead to an increase in um, in ODs and overdoses. I also believe that it did lead to an increase in domestic violence, suicide, mental health issues. And again, they talk about the long-term side effects of COVID that has on people. What about the long-term side effects and of the mental anguish that our children have gone through over the last, you know, almost year now. We're, we're getting close to a year since that fateful day that schools got shut down. We're closing in on a year on this. And you're telling me, I've seen it. I've seen the change in my kids. And they're really, they're still positive. They're still trying to keep their, their chins up as best they can. They're, they're resilient. But they're very different people than they were back in March of the early March of 2019 or 2020, excuse me. And not for not in a lot of it's not good. They've been disenchanted with school. They're frustrated with school because they were, they were really into it. They love school. They love learning. And I've seen the change. I've seen the, the transformation in them to be more resentful of it. And this is what's happening. And this is, these are kids that are really, really up on school. Think of the ones that were already kind of marginal at, at, at that time, what they're going through right now. If it's, if our kid, if I, if I can see the suffering in my kids, I can't imagine what it's like for other kids that are, aren't as fortunate as they are. So, you know, these lockdowns are going to have a long-term effect too. So, you know, and I hope that, I don't know, again, I don't know how you can prove that the lockdowns were worth it in terms of lives saved. I don't know how you, I don't know how you calculate that number. And if they do calculate that number, I want to see how they calculated it and what assumptions they used. Cause I think that's really important to know. So anyway, all right, let's talk about where the parties go from here. So obviously with the change in power, you have a change in the Senate, you have a change in the white house where, you know, and, and because of what happened with the Republicans, we may save the discussion on the Democrats, but I, I will say on the Democratic side, they have two factions. They have the old guard and they have these young progressives. So let's take a look at that. You have the squad. So, you know, that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, you've got uh, Rashid Tlaib, um, Oham Imar, I think, from, from Minnesota. Um, I, I can't remember exactly her name, but these are people that are very, you know, very progressive. Um, you know, they want they want police reform, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, all this stuff. And um, when discussing her the rhetoric, the rhetoric and um, and policy proposals, they term they refer the the they prefer the term bold rather than progressive, and that's what Bernie Sanders has even used. So they're even changing the 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 language that they're using, what they're calling themselves, because. Now even progressive has become a little bit of a negative connotation. So now, again, those things may work in the district that these people come from. And that's why actually the, the, the House is really a good, accurate representation of what this nation is. Because you can have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Babert, and then you have people like AOC elected to the same body. 
talk about diversity of that that is diversity of ideas i'll tell you that i don't you know i don't necessarily agree with any of them but those are definitely diversity of ideas and so but you even see that within the party you have people that have won very close elections that are coming from conservative moderate districts that have to win elections now they look at it from just winning elections and keeping the, the the control of the Congress, which it actually ends up, you know, people are like, I hate partisan politics. But you know what though? That actually does keep things kind of in check a little bit because you can't then just go on your whim. So if, if the Democrats go said, I don't care about the elections, I don't care what happens, we're just gonna do what we want to do. If they did that, they'd be out in two years, right? So the threat of being having to be reelected, the, the threat to keep their majority, to keep their power, actually keeps them in check because if they go too crazy, they'll know they'll lose. So if they're focused on the politics of it and keeping the most number of people happy, that is going to keep their most aggressive whims in check. And it's going to keep their most aggressive members in check. Because they're going to say, hey, okay, you can do everything you want to do now, but I guarantee you, if you do that, it's just going to get reversed in two years because we're going to lose, and then we're going to lose the White House in four years, and we're going to be back to square one. So pick your poison. You know, get your If you want to get your, your short-term wins now, that's great. But be, because of all the things you want to do, it's going to take years to try to actually implement the things that you want to do, right? So if you... By the time that you'd actually get anything on the off the ground, you're going to have a change in power. And that change in power is then just going to dismantle everything you did, and then you're going to start over again. Or maybe you can take little tiny baby steps towards what you want to do and also maybe work with the other side and give them some of the stuff that they want as well. And then you can show real progress. So that's that. those are the kinds of things that um, that need to be remembered in this kind of thing. And I think that's what the craft, you know, the old guard, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, even the Joe Biden's, they know that's what needs to be done. Maybe not Kamala Harris as much. I think she's more, more on the more liberal side and she wants to be more on the, on the bold side if she had her, her way. But I think she's also starting to understand that you can't just be a firebrand. You can't just push for all the things you want because there are there isn't a, they don't have a big mandate because they have such a small margin. They have no margin at all, excuse me, except for the fact that Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris is the, um, is the vice president, president of the Senate tie-breaking vote. Otherwise you're 50, 50. And then in the, in the house, you've got a very slim majority. So why is that? I mean, why did that happen? And so why, why are the Republicans so up in arms about this? Or like, well, how do we make these gains, but we lost the White House? Well, it has to do with the fact that the Republicans have tied themselves to a single person. And that is where you can make a mistake. The, the big difference right now, yes, the Democrats have an internal struggle between the more moderate, old school Democrats and these new progressives that are coming through. And you have a few exceptions to that, right? You have Bernie Sanders, you have... Elizabeth Warren, who are are liberal and they're older and they've been around for a long time, but those are more exceptions to the rule. Most of them are these younger people that are coming in. On the Republican side, your younger ones are actually more conservative. 
So you're seeing the next generation actually going more towards the fringes. You would have thought that maybe people would evolve over time and actually come more to the middle. But I guess if you look at it, that's probably more of an old school mentality. Maybe, maybe being a, being a moderate, maybe modern, moderateism, I don't even, that's not even a word, but you know what I'm trying to say. I think that that may be actually an, more of an old school notion. Because if you think about it, the lawmakers used to work closer together back in the day. They used to build you know, coalitions. You, you look at people like John McCain, um, who would, um, you know, who would feud with his own side sometimes, um, you would see, you would see deals being made and you, it was more about policy discussion, but there was never this thought that the other side was evil. We, we, we all recognize that we just want what's best for the country. We just disagree on how to get there. That used to be the, the mentality, right? That used to be how things got done because, you didn't look at the other side as an adversary. You looked at them as more of a, how can I convince them that maybe my my views are, are actually going to get us to where we need to be as a country? Those were the debates. They were more substantive. They were more um, based on the fact that we're just all trying to get to the same goal, which is a, which is a good America and where we in, in making things better for our citizens. That's where, where everything was supposed to go. But now you don't see that as much. I mean, you're not, you're seeing that less and less and that's part of where we're at. And, and I don't know if that's why it's going to be this unity and, and this, this notion of trying to come together as a nation. I don't know if that's going to happen because I don't think people are willing to have, have happen anymore because now we have this vision, this focus, the fact that we think that the other side is evil. You know, I people, I see people saying that, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're an extremist. And then the other side saying, well, liberalism is a mental disease. It's like, you know, you can't, you know, when you're looking at it through that lens and they, they want to, the, the other side wants to ruin our country or the, the other side wants to take our, our country back to 100 years to have slaves and, and have women not vote and stuff like that. When you look at the world like that, I mean, how are you going to, how can you come together? How, I don't know. I don't understand how you can do that. And that was really put into high gear with with president trump on the right not that it doesn't exist on the left not that that attitude doesn't exist on the left even before trump now maybe with, because of trump has become more prevalent on the left but in in, in in to be fair trump has made a very easy target for himself for that kind of thing but the problem again is once the republican party decided that they were going to become the party of one person that was a big mistake because that only works if that person's in power. Now that he's not in power, now you have to ask yourself, are we going to be the party of that guy or are we actually going to be a party? You can't be a party of one. And that was the fatal mistake that the GOP has made. And now that one person's not in power anymore. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? Because now you've clearly had people break ranks with him they're going, they were always going to do it the minute he wasn't in power. But you have still this very large coalition that Trump has put together. And the party is not about a platform. Their part, their, for God's sake, their platform was basically whatever Trump says. That's our platform. 
That was their plat- that's their party platform. They don't have a party platform. And they made they they said that we don't have a platform. Our platform is Trump. That was it. One word. So how do you how can you have a party if Trump's not there anymore? Now you have no platform because your platform's gone. So that's where you have to decide. And you you have people that have already drawn the line that says we're sticking with this guy no matter what. And now that he doesn't have the protection of the presidency anymore, he can't make the calls. He can't call the shots. Now what? What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, again, at the beginning, Trump was a kingmaker. If you wanted to win your primary, you had it had to go through Trump. That didn't go as quite as well. I mean, it did work in some instances in the primaries, even in 2020, but it didn't, it, he definitely lost his, his luster. And then you have Jane, then you have the attacks on the election system that he, he made over and over and over again and made him look like himself, look like a desperate, crazy person. And this is, and because they decided that he was the person, he painted the entire party with that, no matter whether they agreed with it or not even if there was a Mitt Romney or a Mitch McConnell even eventually that said, hey, this is ridiculous. We have to move on. Who's been a stalwart of the, of the, of the, of the Republican Party. So where does, the, where does the party go from here? That really, that question really got complicated after January 6th. That was a big, big, big change because they have the, 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 they have turned because it, it turned into it went from just attacking Democrats when all the Republicans seemed like there were at least the Republicans were all united behind Donald Trump at one point. And so they actually had a more, because they were behind one person and because they were winning, it was okay because now you can unite behind this one idea. The Democrats obviously have factions like we talked about. They have the progressive faction, this more liberal wing, this more almost borderline socialist wing, whereas you have, where you have others that are more moderate, more just left. They're just liberal. They're not way, way left, you know. But the, the the Republican Party didn't have to do that because they could get behind Trump. And then he started getting into trouble. Then you had the impeachment and you had the clouding from the Russia thing. And yes, I know the Russia thing turned into quote unquote nothing, but it really wasn't if you read the report. So where does so then you have the election, he loses, and now things are in disarray and people are picking sides. And people are still there have, that still have to win elections and, and, and actually maintain some kind of relevance. And now, of course, Trump is talking about starting this Patriot Party, starting his own party. And he's not going to go anywhere with that. It, that all that's going to do is just hand it all to the Democrats. It's just going to hand it all to them. So on January 6th at the, at the rally before the march in the Capitol happened. This was what Donald Trump Jr. said. 
This gathering should send a message to them, speaking about the disloyal Republicans. This isn't their Republican Party anymore. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. And that's a very accurate thing to say. It's actually true. So when you build your, when you, when you build your, again, when you build on being behind one person, it's fatally flawed because you don't have, now you don't have that person. And if he gets impeached, this is where there's an opening for the Republicans. I don't think they're going to have enough to convict on impeachment. But if they do, if they do, that actually helps them. Because then Trump's not a factor anymore. He can't run for office anymore. And it's clear, at least the fact that the Republicans don't seem to really be giving up on Trump, even now. And that was clear because Ronald McDaniel was elected RNC, um, uh, was reelected to as RNC chairperson. She's the chairwoman of the RNC uh, still. She was a big, big Trump supporter. Um, we saw that with the Arizona GOP. They, they reappointed their chairperson, um, who was a big Trump supporter. And they voted to censure anybody that dissented, anybody that said anything negative about Trump. They, did, they, they censured them. So it's clear that the Republican Party still believes that their best recipe for success is to still gleam onto the Trump brand. The problem is, is that there's only one Donald Trump. Nobody else is Donald Trump. As much as Josh Hawley, as much as Ted Cruz want to make themselves out to be the, the heir apparents, they still aren't Donald Trump. And this is exactly the consequence of getting behind a single person because there's nobody that can replace them. There's nobody that can replace them. He didn't, he is not a conservative. He is, doesn't have any ideals. He doesn't have any, he isn't, I mean, he has no track record prior to be president at all of being a conservative whatsoever. He just said that he just said things that he knew that his base wanted to hear. And he got enough people to, to buy into it to get elected. And he got more people to actually buy into it for a second time. But it just is just it's just a matter of it's just a matter of, of math. So the question was, the other question is, well, how did the Republicans do better in twenty or twenty twenty than they did in twenty eighteen? How did they pick up seats and yet Trump loses? That doesn't make any sense. It does make sense because you're not comparing the right things. Trump wasn't on the ballot in twenty eighteen. And again, because he wasn't on the ballot, not as many Republicans cared. Because again, it was about Trump. It wasn't about the party. It was about Trump. Oh, I can't go vote for Trump? Eh, not a big deal. I'm a Trump guy. Trump's the only thing that matters. And that's how dictators start, right? Because if the president is the only person that has any relevance to this country at all, then we've lost. The, the, the president should not be the singular most important thing person that we elect. That should never happen. And as soon as that's the case, we've lost our republic. We've lost our country. And it's partially Congress's fault. I made a comment on a on a on a Twitter post, you know, of actually on on um it was a it was a reply to um Jenna Ellis who was talking about how um you know, I, I can't remember. It was about constitutional power and something like that. But the problem 
I identified was is that when the party has when when a single party has controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, too often what they have done is they've ceded power from the legislature to the executive branch through legislation. They actually legislated more power to the they basically gave up power voluntarily to the executive branch. Well, you're never going to reverse that because if you're in power, you're not going to give it up. And then when you don't have power, they're not going to reverse it. And when you have a mixed house, the president's just going to veto. They're like, I'm not going to voluntarily give up this power. So over time, the White House has become more powerful because the legislature has ceded power to it. And that's part of the problem. And and I don't see, until you get a president that is honest enough to acknowledge that and acknowledge that the presidency needs to have less power, that will then be the only way that that maybe that balance will start to be to restore itself. And so if they want to take executive action to actually take away power from themselves and give it back to the Congress, maybe that'd be great. But then the next president can just reverse that because it's an executive action. But I would want to go to the Congress and say, Hey, look, why don't you put some legislation, take some power back. I'll sign it, get it approved. I'll sign it. I don't want the power. This office shouldn't have the power because we have to think about the future. We have to think about where we are and we have to think about balancing the power structure in Washington again. That's what that that's what we really need to do. But that's not never going to happen. But because again, back back to the any anyway, anyway, back to the story. In 2018, Trump wasn't on the ballot. So Republican turnout wasn't as high. And the the Democrats really had Trump to them was on the ballot as trying to defeat the Republican Party. And that's what happened. And typically, the sitting president in his first term, his first midterm, usually doesn't do very well anyway. And historically, that is the case. It didn't, it didn't go well for Clinton. It didn't go well for um, for, for Obama. Um, and obviously, it didn't go well for Trump. And so, but, but they still didn't get the majority in 2020. They did get the majority in 2016. So if you look at the number of seats that changed from 2016, you skip 2018 and you go to 2020, the next time Trump was actually on the ballot, he didn't fare as well percentage-wise. And the Republican Party in the House did not fare as well percentage-wise because in 2016, they had the majority when he was on the ballot the first time. The second time he was on the ballot, the Democrats won albeit by a, by a slim margin, but they won more House seats in 2020 with Trump on the ballot than they did in 2016 with Trump in the, on the ballot. You see how that, that, if you compare that, then all of a sudden the math makes more sense because we didn't change, none of the congressional districts changed. There may have been movement between them. Obviously people move in and out all the time, but the boundaries only change after the census, which won't change until... I think the 2024 election. So the boundaries were the same. So the only thing that changed was that Trump had less support. And therefore, it looks like that if you, again, if you compare 2016's house races to 2020's house races, you see the shift. And it went along with the shift in the vote for president. Does that make sense? So I don't know if I've done a good job of where the Trump, where the Republicans go from here, but I think that a key to their future would be impeachment. 
I don't think it's going to happen, though. So if that doesn't happen and he's still a threat in 2024, there's still enough support for Donald Trump that he will still remain a factor. And he will still dictate not only what happens in 2024, but possibly 2022 as well. Now, him not being on Twitter, that could make a difference because I think he had a lot of influence. He influenced a lot of his people. And now a lot of his run-of-the-mill basic followers can't communicate with him as much. He doesn't have as much of a platform. I'm sure he'll probably try, he'll find a way to, to communicate directly to his base. I'm sure it'll happen. But I think that there's a lot to be said that, that Trump still will be a factor in this party. And the, the GOP, to their own disservice, has basically made it that way. It was never party first for Trump. It's always been Trump first. And a lot of people like that. And a lot of people still like him because of that. So it's still the party of Trump. Now, it'll be interesting to see, though, if the McConnells, the Romneys, and others, because we know that Lindsey Graham's still all in for Trump. We know Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley especially are. I think you know Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are probably going to be on the ballot in 2024. But if if Trump runs and they've been supportive of him, I don't see how they can run against him. I don't see how they can run against him. The only person that could run against Romney is or, or against Trump is Romney. I, I kind of you know gave that one away. I think it's Romney. Um, I don't think he's going to run. I don't think he wants to run. Um, but if there's any dissension there, it will be Mitt Romney um, because there's other people that are just afraid. And, and if Trump decides not to, then they're going to be clamped. There's going to be a faction in there that's going to be clamoring for his endorsement. You know, you may see a Marjorie Taylor Greene try to throw her hat in the ring with the, Trump, with the support of Trump, maybe as a vice presidential pick or at least trying to angle for that. Maybe a Cruz, Taylor Green uh, ticket uh, type of thing. You know, Holly and Cruz will definitely be going after the Trump um, supporters. That's why they're still kind of being very aloof about the whole, you know, thing that happened on January 6th. I think that's part of the reason that they're doing that. But um, it's hard to say where the party is going to go. Unfortunately, it's, it, it, there's really no good answer. Um, but I, I think that Trump's going to continue to have influence. I don't think anything that comes out against Trump, the, the base, the vast majority of the base is not going to believe it. They've already proven that they don't believe any of this stuff that, that comes out against him. So it doesn't matter what happens. You know, he, when he said I could shoot somebody on fifth Avenue and lose any votes, he was right. He was right. And that's and because then they'll just say he didn't do it. We have a video of him. No, no, that was that wasn't him. No, it's fake news. It's fake news. You can basically take anything that is bad about somebody that you like, and just call it fake news. And because oh, because well, CNN said it, you know. Because then what happens is is like OANN, they just don't report it. If they don't report it, then and only CNN reports it, then it's fake news, right? That's how it works. <clears throat> um, anyway. I did want to mention one one quick thing um, on the coronavirus before I go. I, I did forget to mention this while I was talking about it. So 
CNN came out with an article earlier this week on uh, Thursday. Sources with direct knowledge of the new administration's COVID-related work told CNN one of the biggest shocks that the, that the Biden team had to digest during the transition period was what they saw as a complete lack of a vaccine distribution strategy under former President Trump, even weeks after multiple vaccines were approved for use in the United States. There's nothing for us to rework. We are going to have to build everything from scratch, one source said. Another source described the moment that it became clear the Biden administration would have essentially have to essentially start from square one because there was simply no plan as well, just, a, just further affirmation of complete incompetence. Now, in the White House, in a White House briefing Thursday afternoon, Dr. Anthony Fauci rejected the suggestion that the Biden administration would have to build distribution plan from scratch. We certainly we're certainly not starting from scratch because there is activity going on in the distribution, uh, Fauci said, adding that the Biden administration is amplifying in significant ways existing vaccine distribution efforts. I mean, we're coming in with fresh ideas, but also some ideas with the previous administration. You can't say it was absolutely not usable at all. So again, and people picked this up. People picked this article up and and, and they ran with it. So, it, you know, this is where you've got to, you got to make sure you read the whole thing. At least CNN was honest enough to put that quote in from Fauci, right? Fauci was there. He was working in the administration, and he has no loyalty to Trump. We know this. And so for him to say that, you got to believe, you got to think that he's telling the truth. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that was a little bit petty, a little bit catty. And the fact that CNN is reporting this, again, anonymous sources, I don't have a problem with that. You need that. Because people don't want to, you know, they can't speak on the record about stuff that's going on. But we still, they still want the public to know. But they know if they're if they're the ones that 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 they're quoted, they may get fired, right? I mean, and then we we'll lose, and then then no one will ever report any of this stuff again. We'll never know what's going on in government. So anonymous sources are one of the main ways we have to um to get it. Obviously, we have to trust some integrity there. But anyway. I, I know. I, I I know. I've gone on long enough, so we're going to go ahead and wrap, wrap the show up. Thank you for joining on this on the Moderate Podcast. Um, remember to visit our website at themoderatepodcast.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash themoderatepodcast and on Twitter at themodpodcast1. We are on Instagram at themoderatepodcast. Also, again, remember to write a review, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser. If you go to our website and click on the Podchaser uh, banner, you can review us there as well. Um, and also please remember to share the show with your friends and family. Get our audience bigger. We want to get more questions from our audience so we can answer those things and also have really substantive policy discussions. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your thoughts on illegal immigration. I want to hear your thoughts on the environment. I want to hear your thoughts on COVID and all that other stuff. So send me emails, share the show. We really appreciate it. And until next time, again, people stay safe and always keep it real.